0: Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brew Krulak Center for Innovation and in Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brewcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best and in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, United States Navy, or any other agency of the U.S. government or any other entity with which our guests might be affiliated. So for today's episode, we're going to take you back to the summer of the year 1900 when foreign diplomats living in Beijing's legation quarter were besieged by Chinese imperial troops and boxers members of a secret society determined to rid China of foreign influence. Defending the Legation Quarter was a small international guard that included 56 American sailors and Marines. To survive, the Americans communicated with their foreign allies via hand signals, improvised as food supplies and artillery dwindled and fought fiercely despite nearly impossible odds, but they could not hold out forever. Relief of the Legation Quarter required additional U.S. sailors, Marines, and soldiers, as well as an international coalition and uh, facing off against a significantly larger force of imperial soldiers, imperial Chinese soldiers, and boxers. The conflict was the U.S. military's first taste of coalition warfare on a global stage, and its first time meeting China on the battlefield. To tell us more about this unique event in record history, we're excited to welcome Ms. Emily Abdao to the broadcast and to talk about her new book, The Boxer Rebellion, Blue Jackets and Marines in China from 1900 to 1901, published by Naval History and Heritage Command uh, this year. The book outlines the conflict and the lessons learned as the United States prepared to assume a much larger global role in the 20th century. Emily joined the Naval History and Heritage Command as writer-editor in 2020. She's a graduate of Rice University in Houston, Texas, where she served as co-editor-in-chief of the Rice Thresher. So Emily, welcome to the show. We're excited that we actually get to have you here in the Krulak Center, because it's not a not a common occasion when we do the broadcast. most of it is me looking at the guests through my webcam, so I appreciate you taking the time to come down here fighting the horrible, the worst than usual traffic on 95 to get here and talk to us in person about your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think before we we got some slides here, but I think before uh, we get to that, maybe just give us kind of the background of, um, you know, how did you come to write this book? What was it that interested you in this particular topic?
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So I joined Naval History and Heritage Command in 2020. Uh, And as a writer editor primarily I edit monographs and publications by our team of historians and I also write contributions for our website. And a lot of times how we figure out what we're going to write is we look at our website which is a wealth of essays and digital digitized primary sources and photos and look and we see what what can we add that we don't have already and my supervisor pointed out that our early 20th century part of the website was a little more sparse and suggested I work in that area. And one of the topics that came up when we were chatting was the Boxer Rebellion. And I was immediately interested in that because as both a writer and reader of fiction, one of my favorite series ever is the Poppy War Trilogy, which is a Chinese fantasy. So it's inspired by events of the Opium Wars and Sino-Japanese Wars. But it's fantasy and it totally piqued my interest in Chinese history. So I chose the Boxer Rebellion to research and It definitely began as sort of a pandemic passion project. I Mm -hmm. couldn't go anywhere when I started writing it, but our online reading room at NHHC had, which is Naval History and Heritage Command, has so many digitized resources that there were firsthand reports and accounts by sailors and marines that were there at every stage of the conflict. So as I was reading through these reports, in the summer by the way I was writing during the summer so I think the hot kind of summer heat really helped me yeah, get in the yeah in the, mood, in the right? yeah, yeah June July August was when I was writing that initial draft and I was reading along these reports June July August of 1900 and I really visualized it and I could see this full narrative arc you know the the sailors and marines who had authored these reports sort of became my main characters of each chapter mm-hmm. um well initially it was just an article but became my main characters and by the time I finished it was a 15,000 word article that I turned over to my supervisor so a bit long for the website it is up there but he encouraged me and gave me the time and the resources to adapt it into a monograph and that's when I worked with uh, historian Tim Francis at Naval History and Heritage Command uh, my editor Katie Engel my designers Christina Daniels and Darnell Searles to develop the monograph, expand it, revise it. And that's also when the pandemic, uh, still prevalent, but we were allowed to go into the world a bit more. So I was going to the Navy Department Library, going into our rare book room, finding some really amazing historical maps that I was scanning, uh, some really incredible firsthand accounts, such as an unpublished manuscript of Navy Captain Bowman McCullough, which Mm -hmm. I was excited to be able to source. And I also made trips up here to marine corps university to look for images and some of my favorite images in the monograph that i'll share in a bit come from my my trips here to marine corps history division
0: yeah now the uh we're big fans of the history division here they're one of our one of our neighbors here under education command and as we were talking about before i've uh I've, i have some you know we have done some formal collaboration between the center and the history division but uh individually i've done some work with them too and yeah, the resources they have are fantastic mm-hmm. and they're uh, very helpful in getting access to them. And I would also mention to the audience, if you're interested in looking for stuff to talk about, there's a lot of untapped material in there, just waiting for somebody to sort of shine some light on it. So mm-hmm. um, big fans of the history Vision. Okay, so um, with that, are we ready to turn over to the sure. presentation?
1: Okay. So as, uh, as I mentioned, the last time I was here, I was conducting image research and so As we were emailing before, and you mentioned I could bring some slides, I decided it would be great to kind of set the scene, China 1900, and feature some of the images I found, some of which that I'm about to show you are from my visit to Marine Corps University. Um, So without further ado, I think we can flip to the next slide, which will be our first image. So it's this image, a little bit of a funny story that I'll, I'll quick tell is when I showed up at Marine Corps University, Uh, There was, I think, a Marine Corps officer who had come in two to three weeks before who had seen this image of Marines in a street on a poster and he had wanted to find it and scan it and blow it up for himself. And so the photo archivists were kind of all in a race to see who could find this image first and they were going through all their boxes of photos, but they hadn't found it yet. But one of the boxes I had requested when I showed up was Uh, the box of Private Oscar Upham, who was a Marine that was besieged in Beijing. And he wrote a diary that is also down at Marine Corps University History Division. And when I pulled his box, inside was this folder that was rife, a treasure trove of photos. And one of the first ones in there was this image. And so everyone was very excited that I found it. And as a result, they rewarded me by bringing out their nicest scanner and scanning my images for me, which was... Nice, Nice. I got kind of the royal treatment. So thank you for that. Um, So setting the scene, it's the summer of 1900. And the Marines in this picture are in a street in Beijing. And they have just cleared another street of boxers. And as you mentioned in the intro, boxers are members of a Chinese secret society uh, they wear red sashes. They practice martial arts that they believe will make themselves immune to bullets. And they have a slogan that includes the translated line "exterminate the foreigners." So they did not want foreigners in China. They wanted them out. Um, and one of another recruiting method is a poster that I include in my monograph. That I was, I was really entertained to find. Um, And this is a boxer propaganda poster that would have been posted in northern China leading up to 1900. Mm -hmm. And so we can see these caricatures of Western men, and they are attacking two dragons. And dragons have always been a very powerful symbol and celebrated symbol in Chinese culture. So this would send a clear anti-foreign message that one one dragon is eating a Westerner. Another looks to be barbecuing another Westerner with his his flames. Um, And so why was this anti-foreign attitude so prevalent leading up to 1900? So in 1898, we have the flooding of the Yellow River, and it wipes out a bunch of crops. And then in 1899, after this flood, we have a drought that arrives and stretches into 1900. And some of the Chinese populace do blame the foreigners for this situation in northern China. They believe that these foreigners have arrived and disturbed the feng shui of the land. The Westerners have built railroads in China and these railroads uh, cut through the burial grounds of Chinese ancestors. And they have also built churches in these Chinese villages and the churches tower above the other buildings. And there's this rumor that perhaps the steeples are bottling up the sky and so rain can't come. So there's this sort of superstitious attitude that is anti-foreign. But in addition to that, there are also Christian missionaries throughout China. Missionaries gained access to China following the treaties that were signed in the wake of the Opium War that really opened up China to the Western powers, including missionaries. And they went throughout China in these villages and their presence really did disrupt the fabric of Chinese society. The missionaries were not beholden to Chinese law and so they could often get their converts, Chinese Christian converts, they could finagle them out of legal proceedings, and they had more resources as well, such as food. So Chinese who had converted to Christianity were often labeled rice Christians by their resentful neighbors. There was this, oh you've converted for, not for the faith, but for the resources and the influence provided by the missionaries, and of course these resentful Chinese neighbors are starving as well, and they want you know, um, some kind of organization to belong to. And if you don't join the missionaries and go with the church, another option is a secret society such as the Boxers. So we've got the church, we've got the Boxers. And it's no surprise then that starting really in 1898 into 1899, the Boxers start attacking Chinese Christian converts. So they're the first victims of the boxers and they are killed by tens of thousands and they have to flee their villages. The Westerners aren't super concerned about this at first because it does seem like a conflict that's maybe between Chinese people. Mm -hmm. But then as we go into New Year's Eve, uh, before we enter 1900, a British missionary is beheaded by boxers and then the Westerners start to worry And then there are more attacks against Christian missionaries. And then there are attacks really against Westerners, really anybody, railroad workers as well. So the Westerners in China are starting to worry. And some of those um, foreigners in China live in the legation quarter in Beijing. So that's the quarter that's home to all of the diplomats, uh, diplomats of 11 different nations, including the United States. And one of those diplomats is the US minister, Edwin Conger. And he is very nervous. So he, you know, sends a message to the Navy and the Navy ends up sending a ship in March to have Naval presence there. Uh, And Conger also puts his head together with the other ministers and they decide, we'd really like to have a guard here protecting us so we don't get beheaded by boxers. So in late May, early June, you've got 407 sailors and Marines from these foreign nations that arrive at the legation quarter. And among them, as you noted, are 56 sailors and marines. 50 of them are our Marines. so it is a mostly Marine guard, which I, I should note because I'm here at Marine Corps University, um, and six are sailors. And so they are part of that guard, and they are in for a siege. At first, you know, boxers are mainly just annoying the perimeter. But in late June, the Amherst Dowager sushi of China, Uh, declares war on the foreign powers and that is in response to foreign navies seizing some forts and she declares war and then we've got the Qing Empire's imperial soldiers joining the boxers and a 55-day siege begins. So these 407 sailors and Marines are in for quite a time and they have to cooperate and use resources that are available in order to survive. And so two instances that I will highlight, what we're looking at here is the Tartar Wall. And this borders the legation quarter in Beijing. So it's on the south side. Uh, Part of it is next to the German legation and the other part, the western part, borders the US legation. And because of that, the Americans are responsible for holding part of this wall. And it's critical because If the Chinese were able to take this wall, they could, you know, have a direct line of fire into the legations quarter, life would be pretty untenable at that point. So they had to hold the wall. Um, And so Marines really, for a lot of the siege, were up here day and night getting very little sleep and they had to build barricades. And so they actually used the stones that were already on top the wall and were able to remove these massive stones to stack these barricades. And then to protect their heads, they didn't have sandbags to stack on top. So they used the earth bag is what they refer to. And it's really just this fabric stuffed with dirt and the women in the legation quarter would make them. So satin and sackcloth were side by side, these earth bags stacked stacked atop. And they had these improvised barricades to defend themselves. And actually on the right, you see So I'll first start on the left, you see the inner wall. So there's a ramp going up to the top and you can sort of see some of these stones that are stacked on the ramp. And you can also see to the left, it actually looks like some stones have been removed. So they're kind of moving around the material. And then on the, on the outer picture, we have that outside part of the wall that was held and you can see these bastions jutting out every hundred yards and on top of this bastion is where these barricades would have been built, and there was actually one point in the summer in which the U.S. had a barricade on one side of the bastion, and the Chinese had gotten so close that they were sharing the same bastion and were barricaded on the other side. So you can, this visual kind of shows you just how close they got to each other. So we've got the earth bags and the improvised barricades, and now we can flip to the next slide, and I'll talk about one of my favorite um, stories of innovation and adaptation from the monograph, which is the international gun. So US uh, Navy gunner's mate, first class Joseph Mitchell, uh, is one of the six sailors at the legation quarter. And he arrives and He is manning the artillery, but the Allies are running low on artillery. They don't have a lot left, and the guns they do have left are simply too inefficient. So they try to figure out what else can we use to defend ourselves. We're surrounded by the Chinese with all of of these modern weapons. And so Joseph Mitchell starts trying to build a cannon with a pump. Uh, But before he can finish with that effort, some Chinese Christian refugees in the legation quarter find a bronze barrel of a cannon. And I believe I read in one account that they found it in a junk shop. They don't know exactly the origins but it's possible it was from the Second Opium War and Mm -hmm. from the Anglo-French expedition that reached into China. And so this is really a godsend because he now has a cannon barrel. He doesn't have anything else but he has something to work with. It's a start, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So So what does he do? And I think this really kind of represents the collaboration that took place in the legation quarter because he starts using parts from every nation. So the Italians had a one pounder that they brought, but it had run out of its ammunition. So they take the gun carriage from that. And as you can see in this image, uh, which is from Marine Corps University, by the way, as were the wall images, um, there's rope that's tying the barrel to the gun carriage. So it's just rope. (laughs) Uh, so not the most high-tech but gets the job done so he ties it with rope and then he needs to have shells he can fire and so these shells are Russian shells the Russians I think this is so funny they had left Tianjin a city in the interior of China and come to Beijing and they brought their shells but they had somehow forgotten their field piece in Tianjin so they arrive with just these shells and they don't want them to fall, fall into Chinese hands. So they throw them down a well. And then now they have a use for them. So they haul the shells up from the well and they aren't a perfect fit in the barrel, but they are able to sort of pound them in and fire and yes. kind of hollow it out. So it's a very elegant process. Uh, and And that's how the international gun is born. She also, I think they also nicknamed the gun Uh, Betsy or the Empress Dowager, so they had they had some other nicknames as well. So this gun, as I said, is sort of symbolic of the collaboration because it's not a well-oiled machine, which I think I wrote in my monograph, and it emitted a cloud of smoke every time it fired, which let the Chinese know where to aim their rifles, Uh, but it did get the job done. Um, And a sort of interesting anecdote is The gun, I think, also can sort of symbolize some inter-service rivalry that occurred at the tail end and after the Boxer Rebellion, because after the conflict was over and the legations had been relieved, the gun just sort of lays around. The nations claim their parts and that cannon is still there. And the Marines want to take it with them, but they're told that it will be part of a monument if they leave it in Beijing. So they decide to leave it. And that promise does not come to fruition. Again, the the, that bronze barrel just continues to lie there, and ultimately, a U.S. Army captain finds it. And he goes, "Oh, did anyone else claim this? Okay, well, I think I'll I'll take it then." And so he ships it to Nagasaki, and then on to West Point. And the, is that word is today. No, don't worry, it's not the end of the story. Oh, okay. So. The Navy and Marine Corps were not happy about this. Uh, Bowman McCullough, who was a Navy officer there, writes a very angry letter to the Secretary of the Navy and then Captain Myers, the Marine officer, during the siege provides his own testimony to sort of establish this Navy connection to the gun. So within a year, 1901, um, there are some exchanges between the Secretary of the Navy and the Secretary of War and the gun does make its way. It is shipped from West Point to Annapolis and that is where it is today. It's at the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. It is in storage for now. One day I really hope to see it Um, but not on display at the moment I don't believe but they did send me some images of it which was very cool to see and that's where it is and I do think it is kind of a symbol of the rivalry because after the legations are relieved there is this question of who gets to guard the legation quarter, the army, Or the Marine Corps that persists for a bit until ultimately the Marine Corps is allowed to allowed to stay. Yeah I
0: recall in even in like the victory parade, if you want to call it that, at the very end there was that rivalry started coming out like who gets to be in the parade? Who who gets gets to to be in front?
1: Who gets to be represented? Definitely. This is an image of sailors repairing a railroad in China. And so this image is from the Seymour expedition. So this is the first expedition to try to relieve the legation quarter and the besieged sailors and Marines there. So this was a force of about 2,066 men. Well, I say about, that is a pretty precise number. That's the number given in the Secretary of the Navy's report. And in that, around 2,000 are 112 Americans, mostly sailors, but some Marines are recorded as well under Navy Captain Bowman McCullough. And here they're repairing the railroad because they piled into train cars and were hoping to have a nice, you know, several-hour train ride from mm-hmm. Tianjin to Beijing. I think more peaceful times. It could have been a three-hour trip. Uh, that didn't happen here. The boxers had done an excellent job dismantling the tracks, uh, and so the navy sailors really kind of have to adapt and figure out how to repair a railroad in a really, a really expedient amount of time. But unfortunately, progress does bog down and this expedition fails. It does not reach the legation quarter. And that is in part because its officers were inexperienced with working together with coalition warfare, how to organize themselves. So that did bog them down. And in addition, they had underestimated the Chinese. I think, first of all, they did not foresee the Empress Dowager throwing her forces behind the boxers. And second, they simply had underestimated the Chinese army. So Captain McCullough who's there talks about in his, his unpublished memoir that he was surprised the first time he saw the Chinese army and he was surprised to see that they were well uniformed and that they had Western, they had rifles. He had no idea that Western including American companies had been sending weapons to China which seems like a pretty, seems like something he should know but he did not and so they were certainly in for a time and Truthfully, the Seymour expedition is quite lucky that they weren't all killed. They really are, that definitely could have happened, but there was some luck on their side for sure. Uh, They stumbled upon an arsenal that saved them and they happened to have a Chinese servant that was able to send a message to Tianjin about their location. And the only reason this Chinese servant wasn't killed when he reached the foreigners in Tianjin is because he knew semaphore signals from working for a bit in the British Navy. So there was a lot of luck involved in this mm-hmm. Seymour expedition even, even surviving, um, but most of them did. Uh, and what we're looking at here are junks. So these are Chinese sailing vessels and they are following the curve of the high river. So this is a picture from the second expedition to try to relieve the legation quarter. The first one I showed you on the railroads, that was early June. Mm-hmm. This is in early August. So. Quite a bit of time has passed for the poor beleaguered uh, sailors and Marines in Beijing. Uh, but this this sets out on August 4th from Tianjin. And they've, kind of, they've learned their lesson a bit. So instead of around 2,000 men, they have a reported strength of around 20,000 men. So about 10 times the force. And they are clearly following the river, which takes you almost all the way to Beijing. And they've given up on the railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, Still though, despite the fact that this expedition does ultimately succeed, they are hampered by poor coordination, they're hampered by internal rivalries, and by the intense summer heat, and all three of those factors do increase casualties among the Allies. Um, Despite these obstacles though, they do reach Beijing. U.S. soldiers scale the walls of Beijing, and there's a very kind of famous uh, painting of a Calvin P. Titus a bugler I believe a musician just climbing the walls and he was the first one to climb the walls which I guess is another another example of using the resources they had they didn't have they didn't have ladders or anything like that so they climbed them they threw down some rope to pull up their weapons um, and so they do ultimately relieve the legations and, and the next day uh, August 15th the US force its way really all the way to the doors of the Forbidden City. They're minutes from positioning their cannon and blasting their way through the doors when a message comes from their allies that they should hold off and maybe not do that not yet. yet. Yeah. So they can all parade through together, um, <laughs> which gets me to my last slide. That is on August 28th, the the Allies parade through the Forbidden City. They really didn't know if they should, what they should do. They didn't know how to handle the Forbidden City, but they did they ultimately decided they wanted to I guess leave their mark and make an entrance so each country flies the flag of its nation as you noted there was there was uh, arguments over who got to go first I think the Japanese really wanted to go first but the Russians ultimately got to go first so they they marched through and in this in this force we have uh, two companies of uh, Marines. So, one of the companies in this parade is commanded by Smedley Butler, mm-hmm. I'm sure many of our audience know, um, but who would go on to win or er, earn two medals of honor. And the other commanded by future Commandant of the Marine Corps, Wendell C. Neville. So, they march through, and really that's that. The door is closed. There's n- really no other trace they leave, but they did enter the Forbidden City. and. So all in all, 1,200 Marines were in China at various stages of the Boxer Rebellion. The Marine Corps out of all the US services really had the most consistently strong presence throughout the conflict. The Navy had the strongest presence in the beginning, but by the end, were doing more of a logistical support Mm -hmm. role, sending supplies in. Um, And the Army didn't arrive until July, but the Marines were there the whole time. And that is reflected in the fact that out of 59 Medals of Honor, 33 went to the Marine Corps. And one of those went to Private Dan Daly. That was his first Medal of Honor, which he got likely for a night in July when he was single-handedly defending a section of that Tartar Wall uh, bordering the Legation Quarter against the Chinese Imperial troops. so as you noted, the Boxer Rebellion definitely makes for an intriguing case study, given that it was the US military's first taste of coalition warfare, kind of on a global stage, and its first time meeting China on the battlefield. And so as a result, it is rich with lessons learned uh, from for the US Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, a couple that I'll highlight are a need to develop personnel for coalition operations, you know, equipping its officers with the foreign language skills to even communicate with their allies, mm-hmm. which was, as you probably saw, lacking during this conflict. Hand signals were often used. Um, and uh, the ability and training to kind of organize structures of command with their allies as well, maybe a little bit less making it up as you go along, which definitely did occur uh, in, yeah. in the Boxer Rebellion. Um, another lesson Uh, is that the officers during the Boxer Rebellion, you know, had a clear prejudice towards the Chinese. They had stereotypes in their head and this caused them to underestimate who they were up against. So, kind of the need to combat this prejudice and preconceived notions with intelligence. So they had an accurate picture of who they were even fighting. And then Finally, this ability to make sure that you can adapt your skill sets to an unfamiliar environment, since that really was critical for the survival of the US military personnel at every stage of the conflict. So that is my, my brief presentation. I'm happy to chat further and answer any audience questions as well.
0: Uh, looks like we've already got some questions coming in here. Oh, well, here. okay. So that's great. Um, a couple of things I wanted to just kind of jump off with. Sure. The and really the first one is is getting into that sort of battlefield adaptation and innovation yeah which was sort of from the very beginning and then all the way through the attempts to relieve the legation as well as inside the legation itself uh, was one of the things that really jumped out at me you know? mm-hmm. and and for not for a number of reasons partly because I'm sitting in a center for innovation right in future warfare um, you know but the 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 sheer variety of things that the sailors and marines and the other uh, other um, western forces had to do. Um, it, it, was, it was amazing. So like mm-hmm. fixing the railroad, as you said, yes. um, but what else was there using the junks and, you know, local aquatic riverine craft yep. to move your logistics, uh, the international gun, which I, I didn't catch the rope thing on there, <laughs> um, in the initial read through. So that's, that's equally impressive. Uh, and then up to climbing the walls, is there anything to ascribe to how the various forces were able to constantly do those adaptations? Because I would like, I look yeah. at, you know, say. So you took a bunch of random Marines and Sailors today. How many could fix a railroad, right? Like if you said tracks broken, Gosh. go. I need a working party to go fix it. I, I don't know that you'd have necessarily that skill sets like right there. So how, what allowed like where did all those skill sets come from? How were they able to 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 do all these innovations and adaptations again and again and again? What yeah. what, was, what was in there that let them do that?
1: That's a good question. I think a lot of it did come down to individuals being able, who did, were lucky enough to have certain skill sets um, play up their role and then help their fellow servicemen figure out what they were doing. So, for example, with this railroad repair, I mean, repairing a railroad is a highly skilled, uh, highly skilled task. and so highly skilled. In fact, I think the hardest part that they wrote about in the Boxer Rebellion was the act of driving the spikes. Like mm. that was something truthfully that not all the sailors and Marines could do. It it so happened that they were lucky enough that one of the sailors on the expedition had worked on a railroad before and was able to drive the spikes and fill that role. And then some of the, I guess, other kind of tasks of just like lugging the rails and laying them down might have been slightly less mm. highly skilled and they were just able to To muscle it and then so I do think there was some element of luck of having having people with certain Mm -hmm. certain skills because for example the um, another one I didn't even mention is the uh, water tenders and machinist mates from USS Monocacy and they were uh, Navy sailors that adapted their skill sets to repair train cars and get them Mm -hmm. get them going and I i guess they were just able to figure out what they'd done on the ship and like certain things just weren't that different like And the steam, engine,
0: the steam engine to steam engine
1: exactly i think there was there was some element of that as well they they really were able to translate their skills from ship to to engine and and that worked in their favor so so i would say really the skills of individuals rather than a whole a whole force just happening to be able to know what they were doing
0: yeah, and I I bring it up because you know it in our Q and A we're not going to try and you know reach parallels from back then to today. But mm-hmm. it, a thing you know going on in the Marine Corps today is talent management, better utilizing those individual skills that you know people bring with them into the service. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just I look at it and it's an interesting story of you know how do you repair a railroad, right? Yeah. Or maybe you just ask ask your Marines and Sailors who's got experience on this problem. Yep. Let me go do it. So it, just, it was just amazing that they just they constantly had to find their new problems that they had to yeah. just figure out ways to do it with what they had.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the railroad one's an interesting one too, because since they really were limited with how many people could drive the spikes, they did end up hiring Chinese workers mm-hmm. to help them drive the spikes too. So maybe maybe a story there too, of at some point also realizing your limitations and seeing what else you can do to get the job done.
0: Yeah, maybe the people who live by the railroad might have some <laughs> Yeah. that. Yeah, go ask. With the Chinese force, the second thing I sort of had was the um you talk in the book initially, um, sort of the boxers were the first force to go up against the um both the legation and then the release force. And as you mentioned initially, their their approach to warfare didn't exactly serve them well. You know, no. they, they thought they were invulnerable to bullets and then they found out that they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um and they also tended to, I think, have a lot of sort of, you know, melee type weapons hand to hand, not so much, but then you had the, the Chinese, the Imperial Chinese forces who, you know, they were uniforms, they were armed, basically this, well, they, they had weapons from the West cause they were given to them. It was odd that, um, they sort of got the first expedition, but the second one got through and eventually the the Western countries were able to relieve the legation. So what, why do you think that the, the conventional Chinese, the Imperial forces were not able to um, stop that second one or take the legation? Because, I realize, like taking a four or five position, that's incredibly hard. But they had they had similar weaponry. They had vastly greater numbers. How or why were they not able to ultimately um, get through the siege or stop that second mm-hmm. expedition? That's a great question because really they should have been able to. There's if you look at uh, after the
1: siege, how many uh, guns were found lying around Beijing in their corrupt cases, like just just around and not utilized. There's definitely. A question of why didn't this happen and you know Captain Myers of the Marine Corps did also wonder this and part of he had two reasons he speculated in his proceedings article on why this might have been the case one he was said perhaps the Chinese officers didn't lead them and two he speculated perhaps the Chinese were afraid that the foreigners had spirit soldiers on their side so it really wasn't the second he that was definitely reflecting his attitude towards the Chinese but I think he was onto something with the first explanation. But it's not because the Chinese officers were incompetent at leading their forces, it's because they were divided and they did not know how to handle these foreigners in China. So there there was a split among these Chinese generals about what to do. On the one hand you had generals such as Dong Fuzhong, uh, who was fiercely anti-foreign and wanted to really drive home the attack Kill the foreigners, be done with it. Mm-hmm. And then you had the commander in chief of the main Qing imperial force, Ronglu, who was leader of the guards army. Um, and he he was torn. He didn't he didn't like the foreigners in China, and he has this close relationship with the empress, so he shared many of her views there. But he had this under this more forward looking understanding that if we destroy the legation quarter, they're not. They're not just gonna go away. This is happy this is not gonna be good for us. And so I think he sort of understood that China was being opened up whether whether they liked it or not. And so and that destroying the legations might incur the wrath of many of the most powerful nations in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so why I think they weren't ultimately able to destroy the legations or stop that second force is there were generals such as Rung Lu that were likely historians have speculated he was likely withholding his artillery and not driving home the attack as attacks as much as as much as he could. And when that second relief force is fighting its way through to Beijing, they're really just up against, I believe, Dong Fujiang's force. They're up against a much smaller imperial army because so many of the other generals have not thrown the weight of their their divisions behind him. And also at that point, there's less boxer resistance too. And there's a couple of reasons this could have been. It could have been that it finally started raining. Uh, and so they were able to go home and maybe there were crops they could yeah. finally tend to. And it could also be because at that point they had significantly decimated the Chinese Christian population who, and they were kind of enemy number number one. So I think those were those were kind of the factors of a lack of leadership, but an intentional lack of leadership on the Chinese officers' side.
0: Uh, I kind of gets through what I had. We got we do have some questions in the chat uh, for sir. Anything you want to throw out there first? I mean, I, I, I think the, um, the importance of you know, cross-cultural you know, training was that even a, a thought or forethought or, or did that evolve as, as things manifested out there?
1: Sure, it definitely was not a forethought. They were, I think. From the accounts, you can see clearly that they had very little understanding of really anything culturally about their, their, the Chinese and their allies. Um, There were during, it was definitely a thought during the actual conflict. And you did see instances where they were trying to actually, especially in the legation quarter, I think collaboration in the legation quarter may have been the most cohesive because they were, they had to, they had to work and work together. Whereas some, some of the relief expedition there was a little more time for squabbling amongst themselves because they weren't the threat of death was not quite as imminent um, and in the Legation quarter there certainly was this effort to like share culture and maybe bond that way like the Russians made tea in their samovar and uh, US officers would go over to the R- Russian legation and indulge in that and have tea with them and so there was this this sharing of culture to kind of strengthen strengthen ties and the Russians in the u.s they needed to work together. Their legations were right across from each other, so they were responsible for responsible for building and manning a shared barricade.
0: Right, and actually, that that jumps into um, one of the first questions here in the chat uh, from Albert Lee, and this gets into so the coalition sort of had to learn about each other because you were all you weren't going to survive if you didn't, you know. But you mentioned that the the underestimation of Chinese capabilities um, at the beginning of the conflict, right, and uh, so the question from Albert is, was that was there any attempt to fix that after the fact, right? Like to do that sort of what we would call operational culture or like a study of your adversary mm. to, to no kidding, be like, okay, we obviously we undersold them, right? You know, maybe we should study them more closely in case we have to go back and do this again down the road. Curious about the answer because we, uh, I was on a listening to um, Wargaming panel earlier this week at Sierra Space and they were talking about... How the very famous, you know, before World War II, US Navy war college did all the war games. And so they were never surprised about anything. You know, Nimitz loved the war games. But the panelists also mentioned, you know, that sounds good on paper, but the US Navy also severely underestimated They thought Japanese couldn't see at night, right? So they couldn't fight at night. And it turned out, um, you know, Battle of Savo Island and a lot of the fighting around Guadalcanal at the very beginning yeah, they're actually really, really good at night fighting. They trained specifically to do that. And that caused the U.S. Navy uh, a lot of problems early on because of that underestimation. So did you see after, you know, after Uh this was over, was there any attempt to to address that or, um, you know, if there was, did it not sort of stick through the, you know, through future conflicts?
1: You know, you're you're inspiring me to want to go see if I can dig up some uh, intelligence reports from the time. I haven't I did not come across those in my research. But what I can say is that the Navy intelligence office was relatively new at that time. Mm -hmm. It had just been around for a little bit when the conflict started. So my guess is that they were just that part of the lack of intelligence may have stemmed from that. But also, I do believe that there would have been more of a focus because the US military then maintained a more solid presence in China. So while I haven't seen the reports, what I can say is after this conflict, there was a push to learn a lot more and to kind of chart out the geography and uh, understand the country at a much higher level. So the US Navy after the Boxer Rebellion actually became, before the Boxer Rebellion, it had started kind of exploring China. Um, it had sent some ships up the Yangtze River a little bit, but afterwards there was this much more increased, this increased push to build ships specifically to go up the Yangtze oh, River yeah. and chart the river. and learn more about both the geography and the country. So I can say from the U.S. Navy's actions specifically post-conflict, there was a concerted effort to learn more about China.
0: Although I guess maybe maybe they studied China more, but it's possible that it didn't translate to other adversary yeah. studies. Um, yeah,
1: All I, I know China specific, but.
0: Yeah, um, okay, um, next question. This is actually from uh, Nayla Mengel and she's a regular broadcast audience member okay. she's also a docent at the marine corps museum very so cool she often gives us some very interesting little tidbits about stuff that's over there but uh, her question to you is because she's a docent and regularly talks about dan daly is one of those mm-hmm. of, so, you know part of the marine corps pantheon um was there anything in your studies any anything more that you learned about the circumstances around his the meritorious action um sure 13 14 august which i'm assuming is when he got it or what he was cited for his Medal of honor
1: you can share? This is a a super interesting question because the date that Dan Daly's Medal of Honor is awarded doesn't actually line up with his most heroic actions that he was that he was likely recommended for the Medal of Honor for. So this was something that I was scratching my head about as I was researching because Dan Daly's really big moment that he is known for is single-handedly defending the Tartar Wall. And what had happened was The U.S. Marines had a barricade, but the U.S. minister in the legation told them that he actually wanted them to build a barricade further hundred yards east, I believe. And that's because the Germans had actually abandoned their side of the wall at a certain point. Yes, uh, some Chinese Imperial troops had succeeded in driving the Germans from the wall. They were up against some troops on their side. The U.S. was up against troops on the other side. And when the Germans left, the U.S. needed to expand their position. So they'd gotten orders to build a barricade a hundred yards further east that would protect the Watergate and the Watergate was critical pr- to protect because they knew that when the International Relief Force finally arrived that's how they would go in. They would go in through this gate and so Dan Daly and Captain, Marine Captain Newt Hall, went along um, to the point where they were supposed to build this barricade and they were waiting for Chinese workers uh, within the legation quarter to come up with earth bags and the material they needed to start building. And they weren't coming. And so the story is, and this happened in mid-July, the story is then that Captain Newt Hall didn't know what to do. He didn't want to leave Dan Daly there alone, but the workers weren't coming and they needed to build this gate. They couldn't They couldn't wait for the Chinese Imperial troops to figure out they were there. So. Dan Daly says, that's okay, go back for the for the workers, I'll stay here and defend the wall on my own. And so Newt Hall goes back, figures out that the workers were with a translator that didn't speak English, so they didn't know where to go, but he's able to lead them back and they start this barricade. And then Captain Hall commends Dan Daly for his actions for single-handedly guarding the wall at this point. But that was in July. And so then when I read this citation and I saw the August date. I was, I was scratching my head. I can't, I have not been able to locate what he might have done in August that would have accounted for the Medal of Honor that's Mm -hmm. more heroic than his wall action, but what I can say is that I'm not the first one to be a little befuddled by this. Um, There's a journalist, Charlie Roberts, who's written a book on Dan Daly, and he notes in his book kind of the same dilemma, and his conclusion is that that date may have just gotten stuck on there because that's when the legations were relieved. Mm-hmm. But he speculates that Dan Dan Daly got the medal for his actions in July.
0: Yeah. No, that's 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 interesting because um for Smedley Butler and his first medal, um, we had author Jonathan Katz on last year, I think. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, his book The Life of Smedley Butler, basically Gangsters of Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Smedley was kind of there through um, a lot of that sort of early to mid twentieth century US Marine Corps yep. history expeditionary um, operations. And this was I think the first one. No, I'm sorry. I think he went to the he went to Cuba first and then he went to he was involved in this. Um but he he mentioned in, in some the smelly writings that uh Smelly didn't think he like he deserved the medal that he got and that there... Oh, was this
1: at Veracruz?
0: Maybe okay. Maybe I'm maybe I'm conflating.
1: I've actually I just wrote the article about okay. Veracruz that's on our website. So so Smedley, Butler, didn't actually earn a Medal of Honor for his actions during the Boxer Rebellion.
0: Okay, i must be in my daytime.
1: That's totally fine. I think this is super interesting, that the Marine and Navy officers weren't eligible for the medal until 1915. Um, and since this is 1900, there were a bunch... I mean, it's possible the Marine Corps Medals of Honor could have been even higher. Um, and instead, they were, I think Smedley, Butler... Was breveted a captain, and mm-hmm. that was his reward for okay, I mean, his yeah, actions. Yeah, of. his first, I think you're thinking of Veracruz, where he yeah, I'm, I'm didn't like think it. he deserved it, and he wrote he wrote an angry letter to his mother about how his award was, how being bestowed that honor for Veracruz was cheapening our nation's greatest honor.
0: Okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably conflating it. Um, I just know I, I've read, like, I've seen some other Medal of Honor citations from yes. like the very, I don't know, the first 50 to 60 years the medal was offered. And a lot of them, like, I've seen some where it's, like, two sentences.
1: Awarded yes. for valor on
0: this date. And you're, like, nothing about And that's a lot what of what happened.
1: these are like. That's exactly what Dan Daly's is like. It does, no specifics. Great. I think the one, <clears> one specific one I found was there was a hospital apprentice in the legation quarter who was specifically awarded for carrying a message down a street in heavy fire. So you're, like, okay, I know what he did. But gunner's mate Joseph Mitchell, who built the international gun, he also got a medal of honor his citation is that is that exactly what she was saying like two lines he was brave no specifics yeah
0: yeah it's just it, it's it's odd it's interesting to me cuz i you know we periodically write awards you know as yes. as officers and you're like for the starting at like the lowest one you got to have like a small essay like you need a lot of detail and it's just interesting to compare these older ones where it's like Ordered for valor on the state yeah would love to know the story behind it but there's no I
1: would too. T- you them. really have to dig, and I think mm. that totally makes sense because I think these these early conflicts to the Medal of Honor count is so high uh, often, mm-hmm. and so clearly over time they've been uh, establishing other awards and raising the bar for what it takes to get a Medal of Honor because the I'm I'm sure there probably were some some Marines and sailors and soldiers that were awarded medals of honor here that by today's standards would not. Would not have
0: qualified. But conversely, you know, you look at the the details of some of the actions around, you know, around this or, um, fast forward to World War I or rewind back to other conflicts, you know people were still doing these incredibly sometimes suicidal actions of bravery Mm -hmm. on the battlefield. So like that they were being brave is, you know, is a gift and it's just, it's really, you kind of wish you could just get more in some of these stories.
1: You do, and you know one thing I will say about Smedley Butler though, is, why I think anyone reading this would assume he got a Medal of Honor is because he, he, like Dan Daly in this conflict, did have a lot of those kind of actions where there was a battle in Tianjin where he, you know, rescued a wounded man in a trench mm-hmm. and was fought, was um, shot in, in doing so. And then he was scaling the wall in Beijing and he was nearly killed, but the button glance or sorry, the bullet glanced yeah. off a button on his uniform. So you would think, you would think he would have walked away with
0: one. Yeah. He got another one eventually, anyway.
1: Yeah, so. he got enough.
0: Um, so we're coming up on an hour here and right. um, conscious of 95 traffic. I want you to have to fight it to oh. on the way back. But uh, <laughs> Before we end, so you've um, you know, you've got your first monograph out here. What yes. are you working on now that we can make you look forward to?
1: Oh, gosh. So well, what I can say is I did, I mentioned it before, but I did just put out an article on Veracruz, the US Navy and Marine Corps in Veracruz. Um, that's on our website history.navy.mil okay, we'll That's my news. little my little plug um, and i do think that's a really exciting one uh, because like the boxer rebellion you see sailors and marines working together and you see sailors and marines leaving these ships to do a landing i think one of one of the things that's most fascinating to me about both the boxer rebellion and veracruz is the amount of fighting that took place on land so right. a very different kind of navy story for Naval History and Heritage Command to put out. So you can certainly check that out. Uh, and then you can also look forward to seeing the books I'm currently editing. I currently have a book I'm editing on U.S. Navy innovation. So it's in its earlier stages, but should be out in, you know, before before the uh, fiscal year is done. <laughs> uh, so those yeah. are my those are my current projects.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I'm something to look forward to again. We are a center for innovation. So yeah, looking to learn
1: about yeah, and US Navy different, different mm-hmm. approaches
0: from whether it's historical or today. Yeah. That's you know, good information to have. And then I, I highlighted this in red and then I forgot about it, but I'm gonna ask you before I forget. Sure. sure. For this specific book, how yes. can members in the audience get a copy? Yes. So at
1: Naval History and Heritage Command, because we are a government agency, we are not selling our books, so there are a select number of print copies that have gone to various libraries. So if you are a member of the audience that does have access to certain libraries or some university libraries, there's also the Naval Academy, mm-hmm. uh, the library here, here has yeah. received multiple copies. So if you have that coveted cat Carter access, there's certainly copies floating around, but everyone can get a copy on our website, history.navy.mil, publications, and then publications by subject. And that is where we have all of our publications grouped by whatever topic you are most interested in. And that digital edition is free to download, um, free to read. And so that is probably the easiest way to access it.
0: Yeah, great. And we'll again, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so people can go and download it directly. Okay, well, um, Emily, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was great to hear more about this story. And uh, again, we'll put all those resources in the show notes so people can go and dig deeper into what the Naval History um, Heritage Command is putting out you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a partner in history to the Marine Corps History Division yes. here. And uh, to our audience, thanks again for joining us uh, for another episode of the Brewcast. We hope you come back next week because we've got two great back-to-back episodes in the works next Tuesday, April 11th. Um, we're actually, I didn't put this together until just now, but we're gonna be taking a look at some other history, uh, another historical retrospective but we're welcoming back Brewcast alum Skip Crowley for a look at Operation Downfall, and uh, for those not familiar, that was the the name for the planned invasion of Japan at the end of World War II, uh, following the Battle of Okinawa, and uh, had that it was not executed, obviously because the war um, war ended following the dropping of the two atomic bombs. But if it had gone forward, uh, it would have been the largest amphibious operation in history, as well as probably history's bloodiest single campaign, as the, the casualty estimates for both sides were, were in the millions. Um, but it did get to the point where there was a lot of detail on that plan, so Skip is going to talk us through what, it, uh, what the plan was, what it would have looked like, and what people were expecting. And then on Wednesday, April 12th, we will be joined by Team Creole Act's own fearless leader, Brigadier General Valerie Jackson. She's currently serving as the Deputy Commanding General for Combined Joint, combined joint Task Force Horn of Africa. And she'll join us uh, from Horn of Africa to talk about the valuable work that the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines of the Combined Joint Task Force are doing in the region to support African partners and allies and strengthen the strategic influence of the United States against global competitors. So we'll be aver- we have been advertising on those. Uh, please register and join us, and we'll see you all then. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crew Lab community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube, or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.